My name's Matt, in case you're new here with us, it's great to have you on this uh, sunny summer Sunday. Uh, Throughout the summer, we have decided to spend our time, uh, like many churches, looking through the Psalms, and so today we find ourselves in Psalm 34, and so if you have a Bible, I want to take that out, now's a great time to do that. Uh, If ever you come here and you don't have a Bible, we have some just at the tables as uh, you come in. Uh, Today we're going to have all of the words up on the screen as we work our way through, so even if you don't have something in front of you, you'll be able to follow along. Uh, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, and then we will see uh, what God has for us uh, here in Psalm 34. Lord God, we thank you for this beautiful uh, summer Sunday. We thank you, God, that we are reminded of your your majesty and your beauty. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that as we come here, uh, we can be further reminded of those things uh, through your word. And God, I pray that that would be the case. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, give our attention to what you are saying here in this psalm, God, that that our hearts would be transformed, uh, Lord, that we would be drawn closer to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me in spite of my own sin to be helpful to your people. And so we thank you, God, as always, for your word and pray, Lord, that this would be a time of, of information and transformation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a few things about Psalm 34, uh, just uh, as we get into it. Uh, The first is that Psalm 34 uh, is a poem. All these psalms are poems, but this is an acrostic poem, which means that the beginning of every line starts with a different letter. Uh, Very often, you know, kids will make acrostic poems about the beach or about cats, and it'll say cats and start all those things. In this case, uh, it's not cats or the beach. It's, um, in this case, it's all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And so if we were to be able to read Hebrew, we would read this psalm, and it would be very easy for us to remember because uh, all that would say A, B, C, D, and we could, we could remember it, which tells us something about the person writing the psalm and his intentions. This is a psalm of David, and he's writing it, and part of his intention is that we would be able to remember easily the truths that are contained within this psalm. It's designed to be instructive, uh, but it's also intended to be an invitation, Uh, The famous line that has been used as this psalm's title is also the title of our sermon, which is, Taste and see that the Lord is good. And there we have an invitation to to come and to know God fully. That's really what David intends here as he writes this psalm, is for us to know God as he does and to see his goodness and his grace. And so whenever you receive an invitation, that's generally uh, the the spirit of the thing. We get a lot of um, kids' birthday invitations. And it's very rare that we find a kid's birthday invitation that's just like on a white piece of paper, kind of scrawled in handwriting, come to my party. Not very exciting. Usually it's got balloons, it's got ninjas or pirates or whatever theme it is. And it's, the hope is that as a child receives it, they're going to be so excited. I want to go to this, this party. It's going to be great. Look at all the, the colors. And that's kind of what we get in this psalm. That it's designed to be a compelling invitation for us to come and know God more fully. And so uh, there's a lot of ways to break up this psalm, but we're going to break it into three. And instead of reading it all at the front end, we're going to work our way through it and kind of pause and see what God has for us all the way along. So the first uh, section, the first part, uh, I see as uh, an exhortation, an encouragement to praise God. And here we see this in verses 1 to 7. And so I'm going to begin by just reading the first three verses as we enter into this, this Psalm 34. Here's verse 1. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. So right away, we see David, uh, he's articulating his heart, which is one of praising God. And then very quickly in verse 3, shifting into an, an invitation for us all to exalt the Lord together. But there's a couple of phrases right in the first verse that uh, are, we need to pay attention to. Uh, to begin with, he says, I will bless the Lord, which simply means that he is going to acknowledge, he's acknowledging how great God is. That's what it means to bless God, to, to speak of how good he is. But the last part is especially striking. Because David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Now, it's a poem, so it could be that he's just exaggerating to make a point, right? He's not actually praising God at all times, but he's just saying, this is, this is how it feels, this is how it should be. Except I don't think that's accurate, because he kind of doubles down on it. In the very next line, he says, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. He's saying he, he really, at all times, praises God and, and wants us to do the same. Which is, which is difficult because if we look at our, I mean, just even yesterday or this morning, we probably would say, honestly, I don't know that I praised God at every moment this morning, right? Like we forgot one of our children at home and we left him there and drove away. And that was not a time where we, we praised God. He, he had a bike. He made it here. It's fine. But the point is that there's all sorts of things that happen in our lives where we say, I don't, man, that was frustrating. I wasn't naturally praising God. And yet for David, he's, he's saying the whole time, in all the circumstances of his life, this is how he feels. And you might think he's, he's one of those really annoying uh, Christians. I mean, o- other people can be annoying in this way too, but Christians can be especially annoying when they always are looking for the silver lining. You know, whatever bad thing that happens, right? They always have a, a good way to spin it, right? My cat died. Well, there'll be kittens in heaven, so it'll be great, right? That's, there's always a... And they seem to totally ignore the actual realities of life, which are not always fantastic. We might think this is kind of David's point of view, except that we happen to know the situation, like why David wrote this psalm. And we find out, if we look at the historical events, that this is actually, he wrote this at a time of a very, very great difficulty. Uh, The historical account of the reason for this psalm is found in 1 Samuel 21. But if you look, if you have your Bible, just at the beginning, uh, before the verses begin, there's this little note, this phrase, and it says, this is a psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So it tells us really clearly, oh, there's something that happened with Abimelech, with David, and that's why he wrote this psalm. And in 1 Samuel 21, we find out what happened. David, at this point in his life, was not yet king of Israel, but he had been anointed king of Israel, so it was coming. Uh, The king at the time was still King Saul, and so uh, David was a servant in his court. David was being faithful. David was trying to serve King Saul, but Saul was getting increasingly jealous, and he would go into these violent rages. He would throw spears at David. He would threaten his life. And eventually, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, he came and said, look, David, you're going to have to leave. I think my dad, he wants to kill you. And in fact, uh, Jonathan sends a message to David and said, you got to get out of here. And so David flees for his life. He's got no supplies, no weapons, nothing. And, and he stops by the, uh, the tabernacle to get some help. He gets uh, some bread, the holy bread, to, some food, but he doesn't have a weapon. And so the priest says, well, we, we have Goliath's sword. Why don't you take that? You're the one who killed Goliath. You you take it. And so David flees into the wilderness, but doesn't have anywhere to go. 
And so in his desperation, he says, well, maybe I should go into the land of the Philistines because Saul will never look for me there. Maybe I can find some refuge there. And right away, he finds out that that was not a great idea because uh, Goliath was a Philistine. And so he's walking into enemy territory carrying the sword of their hero that he killed. And Abimelech is, is the king, or Achish is his name. And so very quickly, we find out that, I mean, they see him, and they say, isn't that the guy who, like, killed all of us? Uh, and, and they sang songs about how many, the tens of thousands that he killed. And so they arrest him. And David is in jail. And he, he writes a psalm, not this psalm. He, I mean, he writes psalms all the time. But Psalm 56 gives us a window into his heart while he is in captivity, at this very low point of his life. And he says this, uh, in just verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 56, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And there we get the distinct impression that David realizes that he hadn't really been trusting in God when he fled Saul. He trusted in his own wisdom and he found himself in, in a more difficult place. But there, when really there were no other doors open to him, he was on his knees and, and he was able still to praise God because he trusted in him fully at the darkest time of his life thus far. And we see here that there is a heart that can praise God because we acknowledge, we understand who God is and who we are. I mean, in that moment, amazingly, David gets an idea of how he can escape the Philistines. It's kind of a long shot. He decides that he's going to act like a, like a crazy person in the hopes that they will just be like, this guy's nuts, and, and let him leave. And amazingly, it works. In 1 Samuel 21, he starts, to, he starts to claw the walls and act nutso and have you know, drool come down his beard. And eventually, Achish, the king, says, who is this guy? He's a madman. Don't we have enough madman here in Philistine? Send him away. And he escapes. And he goes into the wilderness around Jerusalem, where he will be in exile for, for a long time. And there, in the cave of Adullam, he writes our psalm for today. And the next few verses of our psalm he kind of gives testimony about that time. He's saying to, to everyone, God's people, hey, praise God as I do, and here's why I can praise God in all situations. So here's verses four to seven of our Psalm 34. He says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now it's, I think the key term here, I mean, certainly David, he was saved. He had an idea, he was inspired, and he found a way out of that prison. But the key thing here in terms of how he was able to praise God in that difficult situation was really how he saw himself. If you look there in verse 6, <clears throat> He says, and speaking about himself, this poor man cried out and the Lord heard him. Now David, I think, would have had reason to talk about himself in a different way. He was in a situation that was very, very difficult, but it, it really wasn't his fault. I mean, he was being faithful to Saul. When he was in Saul's court, he was, 
He was being faithful. He wasn't trying to claim the throne early. He wasn't being bitter or belligerent. He was being faithful. He was serving God, serving the king, and still his life was threatened. And still he had immense difficulty. He had to flee with no help, no one around him. And you would have understood if David said at that time, look, God, I'm a good man. I've been doing good. I've been faithful. But you've brought these circumstances into my life that are unfair. This is unjust. I don't deserve this. But that's not how he talked about himself. Instead of calling himself a good man or a faithful man, he said, I am a poor man before the Lord. He recognized the essential neediness of his heart. And the difference between the two is one of a a feeling of humility or pride. When we come to the Lord and we emphasize all the things that we have done, in all the ways in which life has done us a disservice, there's an element of pride there that cuts us off from truly knowing God and truly experiencing his blessing. We see this also in the New Testament where Jesus is uh, speaking about those who are blessed in Matthew, in the Beatitudes, and he says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A very similar term. And that poor in spirit, that that doesn't mean that we're always down on ourselves, like everything we do is horrible, can't do anything right. It's not that. It's that we realize that, that there is an essential corruption, something broken and wrong about who we are, that we are not perfect before the Lord. This is not an easy attitude for us to have with any sort of consistency. Our own heart, our human heart, we, we lean towards the other way, right? No matter how difficult it is or, or how much of a challenge. I mean, at the end of each day, probably most of us feel like sometimes we just barely made it through the day. But we still, in difficult times, tend to lean on our own wisdom. We're very quick to point out all the things that we've done. We've got this running list in our head especially in relationship to others, like our spouse or our friends. I've I've got all these good things going on and and here's all the things that you have done wrong. That's natural for us. It's not so natural for us to recognize our own own failings, our, our own need for help. And yet there are situations that God brings us into where our needs become very, very clear. There are times when when we either have no power to improve upon our situations. Maybe it's a financial situation and, and we've done everything we can, but there's, there's a debt that needs to be paid, that there's something and we just don't know how we're gonna go forward. We're on our knees praying. There's a health situation where we've talked to all the doctors that we can. We've sought all of the help that we can and the treatment is not forthcoming. We just don't know what hope there is. We're on our knees praying, Lord, I, I need your help. I can't do it on my own. Human wisdom, human experience is not going to help me in this situation. Or maybe it's just something that's totally out of our control. Maybe it's uh, an application that we've made to a school or to a government agency. And and we went over that document over and over, making sure every T was crossed, every I was dotted, but now it's out of our hands. And and it's taking so long, and we're on our knees saying, Lord, Lord, I, I need you to move in this situation. I can't, I can't do anything. I, I realize my limitations and I need you. See, it's always in those times when either we, we fail in some way or we're brought to the end of our strength and resources when we recognize that, that we, we truly do not have what it takes to arrive at a life of consistent hopefulness or joy. And in those times, this was a time for David 
He'd done everything right. And yet he found himself in, in a dire situation. Those are not times to curse God. They are times to rely on him more fully. To see ourselves more clearly. That we are essentially a, a needful creature. That apart from God, we do not have what it takes to arrive at a life that endures or a life of joy. And so, David says with, with all conviction, with all honesty, I, I have found the way to praise God at all times because I see who I am in relationship to him, that he has the resources and the comfort of the grace and that he promises to come and help me in all situations. He did that when I was with the Philistines and he will do that with you as well. And so I want you to come, come with me and praise God. But he doesn't stay there. He then shifts from, from an exhortation to praise God to experiencing God. And this we see in verses 8 to 18, the next section. This invitation is uh, more personalized because it begins with David's experience and then his invitation. And now he says, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Here is uh, verse 8 to 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Now that language, I love that language uh, because it's just, it's so experiential, isn't it? I mean, David could have said something different. He could have said, believe that the Lord is good. And that would have been true. I mean, that's something we should do. We need to, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and wondering, what is, it, what is it like to be a Christian? Well, you need to believe that the Lord is good, that he is who he says he is. That's essential. That's faith. But to believe something is different than really experiencing it. Like, for example, if, if I brought to you uh, a jar of honey, and for some strange reason that kind of only happens in sermon illustrations, you have not ever tasted honey, right? You're like, I've never tasted honey. You've never tasted honey? Man, let me, I really want you to know how great honey is. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to prepare a multimedia presentation. I will convince you that honey is great. Okay, so come back tomorrow. And you're like, okay, I'll come back tomorrow. And I prepare a slideshow for you, showing you the molecular structure of honey, showing you how honey is made. And then I show you some video clips of people tasting honey and their faces light up. There's testimonials of people saying how honey has changed their breakfast. It's amazing, they say. And at the end of that presentation you probably would say, well, okay, I believe you. Honey seems to be really, really good. You would believe it, but you wouldn't really know it because your experience of honey would be secondhand. It would be all through me and all the people I showed you. Obviously, the thing that I should do if I want you to know how great honey is is to open the jar of or organic honey or manuka honey, which is a little weird, but it's supposed to change your life. So <laughs> you take the honey and you give it, and then when you would taste the honey, man, in that moment, it wouldn't take, you know, 20 minutes. It would take one taste, and you would know because you would have experienced firsthand the sweetness of honey. That's the difference between believing something and truly experiencing it, truly knowing it. And the sad truth is that there are many who, who say that they follow Jesus, would call themselves Christians, and yet they haven't really ever had a first-hand experience with the goodness of God. And this can happen because there, for many people, if you grow up in the church, you may have heard many people tell you how good God is. You may have had many sermons explaining how good God is. You may have heard people tell about their own lives and what God has done. 
but you haven't really experienced him for yourself. I had an email from a woman uh, this week who's part of our church, and in part of the email, she was, she was saying this very thing, saying, you know, for years, I believed things about God and who Jesus was. I believed that Jesus died for my sins, but I hadn't really ever experienced his goodness. There was something missing from her life. And the missing piece for her was a real, a real brokenness of, of spirit, a real recognition of her own sin. And that often is where we will experience the sweetness of God's grace, is that, is that we will come to a point where we, we see ourselves more clearly like David did. I know for me that the times of really experiencing the grace of God, the goodness of God, have been when I've confessed sin, when I've recognized the, how it's destroying my life and the life of those around me, and I've confessed sin to the people in my life or to God, and in that moment of, of really laying hold of the claims of Scripture that in that moment God loves me still and that God has sent his son to die for me to atone for that sin, to make up for it. The comfort of God is so sweet. But if we never come to that place of really confessing our sin, of really coming to know God, then we will only know God secondhand. And so the question that I think partly this text is leading us to ask is, is maybe really where is our refuge? You notice there in verse eight, uh, it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. You only take refuge when you realize that you're in dire straits, right? there's a storm coming, something's going on, and you see the, the hope, the help that is in that thing. And so when we take refuge in God, we're saying, I realize that on my own, I'm in trouble. And I see, Lord, that you have the strength and the grace that I need, and, and therein lies the goodness of God. And so we are to taste and see that God is good, but not, not taste like a, like I've never been to one of these restaurants, but I know there are these restaurants that have tasting menus where the chef sort of is able to highlight his or her skills. And so instead of like one course, you get like 15 plates of food and they're all these little tiny bites and you taste it and mm, that's sweet. But by the end of it, you've had all these different flavors, but you aren't really full. Not really satisfied. That's not the kind of tasting that David means here. He means for us to feast on the goodness of God. And the way to do that is to have both a heart and a life that is pursuing God. And we see this in the next couple of verse, verses, the two couplets. So we're going to look first at the heart and then the life. In verse 11 and 12, we see a heart that fears God. Uh, David says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Now that reference to the fear of the Lord comes up a, a couple of times earlier in our psalm. And it's actually a theme that comes frequently throughout the Bible. And it's a little confusing because generally when we talk about fearing something, that's a bad thing. But in the Bible, it, it says that to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of life. And so what is this fear of the Lord? Well, in part, it's an attitude of awe an attitude of reference, uh, reverence and respect. But it is also a fear of breaking his commands, of going against what God says is best. And there are actually uh, examples in our life where a fear of a thing is, is very good. Like, for example, if you are traveling along our highway at the speed of light and there's a siren behind you, that fear that grips your heart, that's actually a good fear. It's good to be fearful of the ticket, to, to be 
breaking the rules of the road. It's good because it makes our roads safer, right? We, we fear that, and so we, we don't do it. Well, we, we shouldn't. And it's good for us because it, it keeps us in obedience with these laws that are good for us. It's the very same thing with the laws of God. For us to fear the law of God doesn't, doesn't mean that we're always petrified of losing our salvation. It means that we see that the way of God is right. And that as we fear him, we then are blessed greatly. Uh, here is a, a quote that I came across from one of the, the theologians I was reading. His name is James Johnston. And he says this, which I thought was really helpful. He says, the great secret is that if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. And if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. The great secret is that if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. And that if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. We see this in the life of David. In verse 4, earlier on in our text, he said that uh, the Lord had delivered him from all of his fears. And he wrote that after having just been in, in jail with the Philistines. And so you'd kind of say, David, really? Like you have no more fears? Saul is trying to kill you. There's nowhere for you to go. How is it that you can say that there's no fear in your life? There's nothing but fear. And the answer is that, that when he trusted in God, when he, he feared only going against what God said is best, he would look ahead to his life. And of all the paths that he could taste, there's, take, there's only one that really scared him. It was a path where he had his back to God, where he was going against the commands of God, walking away from the Lord in that in that path, he was gripped with fear because he recognized that in all the other paths, even though there was a ton of different trials and difficulties and darkness, no matter what came his way, if God was with him, then he had no fear because God was stronger than all the other things that might come his way, whether it be the Philistines or Saul or whatever else the case may be. And the same is true in our life. When we come to the place where we, we have a fear, a healthy fear of the Lord, meaning we trust in God that he will deal with the essential peril of our life, which is our own sin. When we've experienced God's grace there, then we know that whatever comes our way, we have no reason to fear because God has given us an answer to the trials of this life and the life to come. And so as we walk forward with a heart that fears God, we, we taste his goodness all the more because we come to know him as a saving and gracious and sustaining God, even though we go through all manner of difficulty. We have a heart that desires to walk in his way. And that's the next part. We begin with a heart that fears the Lord and then a life that obeys God. And this is in verse 13 and 14. David says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So you have there kind of some blanket statements. Look, here's the best thing you want to taste to know that God is good. Well, don't do evil. Do what is good. Turn away from what's bad and seek the Lord in all good things and you will experience his goodness. Now this is in one sense obvious, but it's also essential because there's been a criticism of God since the very beginning which says that, that God is essentially a cosmic killjoy. That, that all of his rules, all of his commands are really designed to rob our life of all the goodness, of all the joy. I mean, that was really what Satan was saying to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He's saying, God put you in this garden and he gave you a rule? Man, you know what you need to do? You need to go against that rule. That, that's what you're missing. You would have so, a better life if you would just 
disregard his command about that tree, go and eat of it, I'm sure that that will lead to greater blessing, greater joy. And by this time, in our human existence, it's, it's no longer even a question, it's an assumed truth. That if you want a joyful life, what you need to do is disregard all of these antiquated commands of God and go and do your own thing and then you will be happy. Then you will be satisfied. I mean, that, that life of rebellion is always held up as the, the essence of joy. If you could just go against all of the commands that are in your life and do what you want, then you will feel liberated and free. And we have to admit that rebellion has led to greater good in many facets of our society. I mean, the civil rights movement was essentially rebellion, was saying that this is wrong and we need greater freedoms, and that was a good thing. There have been so many rebellions in our world throughout history that have, that have fought for greater good in our society, but what we need to realize is that in all those instances of rebellion, the rebellion was against a corrupt authority. And so a step away from that, uh, contravening their laws, was a step towards greater good and greater joy. But what happens if the one in authority is already perfect, is already good and gracious and loving? Then any rebellion would be a step away from your joy, away from your good, away from every, every good thing that would fill your life with meaning and purpose and enjoyment. And so the question for us is, how do we see the commands of God? Do we see them as a pathway to even greater joy? Do we see that as we pursue God and pursue righteousness, not, not because we can try to be perfect. In the grace of God, Jesus did that for us. This side of the, the New Testament, we, David didn't realize it. We realize it now. That we can't be perfect on our own. That Jesus did that for us. But, but in response to that, as we pursue a life of obedience, do we see that as a, a pathway to taste and see that the Lord is good? To find greater joy in our life? Do we see the commands of God as restrictive or as life-giving? See, David takes this life of obedience and then in the next few verses, he kind of compare and contrasts it with, with those who are the righteous, those who are pursuing God and those who want nothing to do with his commands. And he takes it to its ultimate end. This is verses 15 to 18. He says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And here we have a description of, of what this life looks like. The person who is pursuing the righteousness of God, enjoying the grace of God, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that is the person that is, is enjoying the comforts of God, is lifted up, is heard by God. But that human being that wants nothing to do with the Lord, turns their back and walks away, will eventually endure the wrath of God. They will not be helped, they will not be heard. And so David has invited us to praise God as he does in all areas of his life, in all circumstances, to, to not just know about God, but to experience him as we confess sin, as we pursue righteousness. But there's a final part to this invitation that is uh, fairly surprising because, because it, it's an expectation that David has 
and wants us to have that there will be afflictions, that there will be troubles as we walk down this road with God. Look at verses 19 to 22. He says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now, this is odd because if this is supposed to be an invitation, um, it's a weird thing to include on, like, come to this way of life. It's going to be great and fantastic. Taste and see the Lord is good. And just so you know, there's going to be a lot of trouble. Like, it's going to be horrible a lot of the times. You would say, why would you put that on the invitation? Right? Shouldn't you just ignore that part and just have people come and then, you know, focus on the good stuff, focus on the tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, the grace and favor? Isn't this something that we should ignore or at least pretend doesn't exist as part of those who follow the Lord? But that's not the way the Bible treats it. That's not, God is candid about what it means to follow him. And we see here that this is a genuine invitation to the best life possible, but it's not pretending that it's the easiest life possible. Because those two things don't often go together. I mean, a quick and easy home renovation is generally not the best home renovation. You know what I'm saying? Right? Just slapping some paint on the wall, putting up some trim. That's not going to be good. You got to take your time. You got to do it well. It's probably going to be hard. That's true of most things in life. And here we see that the best way to live is one that, that seeks to experience God, but it is a life that involves not few troubles, but many. We know this if you look at the history of the world. I mean, even right now, not here in North America so much, but in the rest of the world, those who claim the name of Jesus, they are persecuted for their faith. We are enjoying a bit of peace here that is probably coming to an end soon, but, but those who have called in the name of Jesus throughout all of history have been consistently persecuted because of their faith. It goes all the way back to Jesus himself who was perfect and did nothing wrong and yet was maligned, was ostracized, was criticized, was abandoned and falsely arrested and beaten and then ultimately put to death on the cross. And before all that happened, he said to his followers, look, if the world hates me, it's gonna hate you because in this world there is sin. And in this world, there are the forces of darkness. And so you should expect to pick up your cross and follow me. Not just in the way that I lead, but in the way that I walked, which was through suffering. And if you're here this morning and, and you're wondering, what, what does it look like, like to, to be a Christian? You need to know that this is part of it. And so what is the answer, though? I mean, David has said, taste and see that the Lord is good. So what are we supposed to taste here? This doesn't taste very good, I don't think. Well, we look in our verse, and it says here in those last few verses that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. And so deliverance sounds good, but you know what sounds even better than deliverance? Exemption. Wouldn't that be better? The Lord exempts the righteous from all the afflictions. There is no difficulty that comes into the life of the righteous because God is sovereign and good. Isn't that what it should say? I mean, the, the question really is, David, who would want to taste this? You're telling us to taste and see that the Lord is good, but if God is really good, why wouldn't he protect the righteous? Why wouldn't he put a little bubble? And every time there's any difficulty, 
We would have a force field of God's sovereign protection. Why wouldn't he airlift us out of the fires of affliction? Why is it that if God is so good, he says really clearly, almost within the same breath, that we should expect affliction? We should expect trouble. Well, there is a breathtaking answer to this question, one that is essential to fully understand who God is and what his intentions are in, his li- in our life. And the answer is this. We experience God's goodness more fully when we are taken through affliction rather than when we are rescued from them. We experience God's goodness more fully when we walk through affliction rather than when we are rescued from them. And that's because the goodness of God contains things like grace and mercy and persevering power and strength and redemption, all of those responses to our own sin and to the sin of those around us. And for us to truly experience those things, we need to walk through the trials of our life so that our faith is strengthened, so that we understand the depth of his grace, the magnitude of his power. The Bible says that like steel, we are refined, we are strengthened in the fires of suffering. And in those trials, the glory of God is amplified in our lives. We see this time and again. Here it is in 2 Corinthians where Paul is speaking to a group of Christians, and he says this, we have this treasure, that this, the spirit of God, the saving work of God in jars of clay, that that's our bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. What he's saying is that if you are someone who knows Jesus, if you've been saved through his death and resurrection, then you have a hope that goes beyond this life. And as you live this life, as you go through the difficulties that God brings your way, you are showing the people around you what it means to have a faith, a hope that is beyond this earth. That as Jesus was raised from the dead, your hope is in the same resurrection. And that as you continue to be faithful, people will take notice. People will say, how is it that you have peace in this situation? How is it that you're still praising God? How is it that you still have joy even though these things have happened? I I need to know what that's all about. And your answer is, well, my, my hope is not in these things. I have a greater hope, one that is for all of humanity and his name is Jesus. See, David's invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good, anticipated the true sweetness of God's goodness in the person of Jesus. I mean, he didn't know exactly how God would ultimately save the righteous, but he knew that he would. That was the promise of God. And we, this side of the cross, have the joy of knowing how it is exactly that Jesus would enter into our suffering and that he would redeem it so that we would be encouraged, we would be helped, and that God would be glorified. If you're wondering what a life like this looks like, my encouragement would be to find someone who has lived for Jesus for a period of time. Preferably, they should have gray hair. <laughs> and you should ask them, you know, would you, would you tell me, would you share with me some of, the, some of the difficulties that God has brought you through? 
And would you help me to understand what your disposition towards God was by the end of it? Like, did, like how did you come to know God more through that? Did you? Is it true what it's saying here? I guarantee you, if you have that conversation, it will not be a short conversation. Because anyone who has lived for any length of time pursuing the Lord, for decades even, they will have story after story to tell of how through the suffering, through the difficulties of their lives, they have come to grasp more fully onto the goodness of God and to the grace of God. That's always the way it is with our lives. As we look back, certainly we rejoice in the good times. I mean, there's reason to be thankful. But those times when we really grow in our faith, they always come through the difficult times. Because it's, it's in those times when we see ourselves more clearly and we see the magnitude of who God is more fully. And so David's invitation is one of, of reveling in the greatness of God. But it's also one that really demands a response. Like any invitation, we're to RSVP in a sense. And our response comes in the way that we live. It comes in the attitude of our heart. It comes in, in the direction of our life. And my hope is that in light of this text, we would praise God all the more. That we would seek to experience God more fully. We put ourselves in those positions where we're confessing sin and we're saying, Lord, I, I want to know your grace more. And that even through the times of affliction, that we would expect to know the sweetness of God more fully because of those difficult times and that we would see them as an opportunity to know God more and to reflect his glory. So with all that in mind, let's, let's pray and then let's respond together.